They then claim, well, we never heard back from Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they have zero processes in place to follow up. There's nothing to say, let's put it on another 40-day hold. There's no one to say, hey, we haven't heard back from Blue Cross Blue Shield on this claim. What's the status? And that's where they try to say, well, well, you know, Nicole should have been calling, my client. She should have been calling to find out. Well, well, why? This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. Yesterday, I got a text from my dad. He asked me to call because he and my mom had a question about a medical bill. When we got on the phone, it was a confusing bill from a lab company after my mom had some basic labs done. You should have seen the eye-popping starting prices for these labs. I mean, simple stuff like $102 for a lipid panel, $70 for a hemoglobin A1C, you know, stuff like that. But then, of course, there were the fake discounts. So it took a bill that started out at $862, discounted it down by $779, leaving $83 to be paid. My dad's health plan paid $8, which left my parents with a $75 bill. And here, friends, is why I hate fee-for-service. If my dad's employer would have just afforded their employees the right to join a direct primary care practice as an employee benefit, they would have never had to worry about lab fees or any other surprise bill stemming from primary care. This nonsense would just all go away. You know, I hope you're following the Lewandowski versus Johnson and Johnson case that was filed not quite two weeks ago, because you're definitely going to start to see more large employers squirming in their seats. They probably know they aren't performing their fiduciary duties as they are required to under ERISA. And I smell a day of reckoning on the horizon. Well, today's podcast is about a different case, albeit a small case about a relatively small bill. But don't focus on the bill. It's what caused the bill that's the bigger issue. The fact is that this is happening millions of times per day. Most likely, that also means small bills become really big money that the system extracts from people, families, communities, employers. And all that is swallowed up by a wildly inefficient system, money never to be seen again, at least not by the healthcare consumer. Well, actually, that money probably will be seen again, but reincarnated as campaign contributions for the healthcare system's favorite legislators. But I digress. My conversation today is with Jackie Grady of Grady Legal, a Florida law firm that helps employers and employees both navigate the complexity of the healthcare system and how it impacts both those stakeholders. I really hope you enjoy today's podcast. Okay, today I've got Jackie Grady with me, um, attorney extraordinaire with a really interesting story to tell. And on first glance, when we start getting into the crux of this story, you might think to yourself, wait a minute, this is a judgment on only a small dollar amount, but don't be fooled because the underlying core of this podcast is a little subtle and Jackie's going to explain 
what you really need to take from this. And then once we extrapolate it out to how many millions of times per day this is happening, you're going to realize just like we did that this is a big deal. So Jackie, with that, will you tell our audience about yourself and then um, just kind of start out with this lawsuit that is just really interesting. So take it away, girl. Sure thing. Thank you, Christy, so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so I'm a lawyer. I'm licensed in Florida and Pennsylvania. I've been practicing uh, for over 23 years. And my practice has really become concentrated on healthcare issues, and especially how it affects employers uh, and the employees and, and individuals when they get surprise bills or, you know, claim denials, that sort of thing. Um, and we help our employers sort of look at their plans a little bit differently and making sure that their plans, number one, comply with ERISA, but also work for their employees, right? That everyone's getting the benefit of the plan. Um, in this case, it was really sort of fascinating, but let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. The amount was $293.12. It was a bill from Quest Diagnostics. Um, and just a little backstory, my client, her name is Nicole. She went to her doctor for her normal annual wellness exam like she always had. She had employer-placed insurance and went to her doctor and they drew blood and they did the basic, that comprehensive panel that they do at wellness exams. So this isn't some sort of bizarre test or looking for some sort of rare disease. It was the, uh, the basic panel that they do all day, every day. Her blood was drawn at her doctor's office. She has no idea where it goes. She has no idea what happens to it afterwards. Three months after her appointment, she gets a bill from Quest Diagnostic for $293.12. This became a heavily litigated case. It went on for about five years. And one of the things, as, as a plaintiff's attorney in this case, there's always that concern. We're bringing people in to sit out on a jury. We inconvenience seven people for four days over a $293 bill. And that's sometimes a psychological hurdle we have to get over. But I made the point to tell the jury in the closing arguments that if it was important enough request to send our client eight bills, send her to two different collection agencies and have it show up on her credit report, it's important enough for her to fight it. And it was not the amount. It was the fact of how we got there. So that's really what was interesting about this case is that we did. We fought over $293. But like what Christy was saying, if you extrapolate that, that was one employee. If this is happening to 10 employees, that's close to $3,000. So, you know, that it just builds. And this is on, remember, a comprehensive panel that's everyone does it. So this, this is happening all day, every day. Why we got here should never happen in the first place. So I just want to point out, and I mentioned this podcast a lot because I just really, really like it. And I don't think there's a single episode of a podcast called An Arm and a Leg that I haven't listened to. There was one episode that even detailed um, something really mind-blowing and and eye-opening too called dummy coding. And it was over a very small amount of money with a woman who worked at Mar- the Mars company. I mean, a huge um, billion dollar company. And she is pointing out, a, I think it was something small, maybe even $15 different than what she was used to. But when someone started digging into it, they realized, oh, wait a minute, there's some monkey business going on behind the scenes. 
Aetna is using dummy codes to jack up the plan performance so that it doesn't look like their self-funded plan is actually paying this claim. I don't know. I I need to go back and listen to this, but let's just say even small amounts of money can add up to big dollars when it's happening to everyone. Think of the toll that it takes on the employee, right? I mean, this was... She, you know, I'm not going to get into her personal circumstances, but that was a lot of money for her at the time. And, you know, that's a stress that she was dealing with that now she had to take care of. And and one of the the sort of the issues, you know, when we go to trial, right, we try to tell a story, we try to paint this in a way that people can understand it, make it simple and not get caught up in legalese. And what was interesting is Quest, their entire defense was that the that my client should have fixed it that my client should have been the one making the phone calls, should have been figuring out what was the, the problem was. And the very first thing out of my mouth when I talked to the jury was the, the law does not require the patient to fix the provider's mistake. There is zero requirement for that. And I think that was becoming really important because she had to go to, she went back to her doctor's office when she got this bill and said, what, what is this? I don't, I've never got this bill before. And that's when the doctor's office realized, oh, that's the wrong code. And once it got recoded, it was covered by Blue Cross Blue Shield. And it's funny, Blue Cross Blue Shield is not the bad guy in this, in this case. So I, I kind of joked about that, but Blue Cross Blue Shield says, oh yes, it's the right code. We're covering it. There is a small member responsibility of like $70. But Quest didn't care. They did nothing to change the bill. And they kept trying to get the 293 from her. Yeah. And so that just put a, that just weighed a lot on her. And she's trying to fix her credit. She wants to buy a house. You know, she doesn't have a car at the time. So her credit report becomes incredibly important. Now she's getting dinged on her credit report. And Quest made it her job to fix it. A lot of people get up on stages in academic arenas and pontificate about the social determinants of health. And and they equate those things to just plan members on government-sponsored plans like Medicare and Medicaid. So sometimes social determinants of health can be somewhat misleading and people think, well, that only affects the indigent or the the elderly or whatever. I disagree with that. I, I think there are social determinants in all age groups, in all stripes of you know life, in all different healthcare situations, whether an employer's paying for your plan. I mean, let's face it, this payment integrity issue is a social determinant of, uh, of health. If every time you go to the doctor or if just entering the doors of a hospital means you're going to have months and months of struggle <laughs> with how, you know, do you pay these made up bills? What's actually the right bill? Has any insurance been filed? All this stuff. I mean, Marshall Allen wrote a whole book about this, <laughs> right? So um, if if you know that there's going to be bad outcomes from going to the doctor financially, then you're going to avoid going. Hey, I'm going to weave the concepts of direct primary care and other direct care into this conversation. But this is why so many people are seeking out and enrolling with direct primary care physicians because they the pricing transparency is just part of that membership. You, You don't get surprise bills. And you have, you know, deep, deep discounts for things like labs, you know, and you always know that price up front, no surprises. So 
I think that this kind of uh, behavior and, and, you know, Hey, I know a guy at quest and I sat beside him at a conference that I went to recently. Great guy. He's a doctor too. I think he's their medical director. So I know there's good people at quest. It's not that they're a bad company or anything. It's just that we're all caught up in a bad system and we need to fix the system and the fact that it's so complex. I want to call up one quote out of my favorite movie. Um, And I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Uh, My favorite movie is The Big Short. Now, for those of you who don't like um, foul mouth words, I understand that, you know, it's not a family friendly movie. So don't let your kids watch it. And don't think less of me because I'm recommending a a movie with, um, you know, foul words in it. But the important thing about that movie is that when you watch it and you know anything about the healthcare system, you're going to say to yourself, oh, my gosh, this is just like how our healthcare system is. And the financial crisis of 2008, which is what that movie is all about, Lord have mercy, that could actually happen with the healthcare system in this country. Well, so in this movie, early on, the script reads, one of the hallmarks of mania is the rapid rise of complexity and fraud. And did you know those rates are going up? (laughs) I, I can't help but point out our healthcare system has the highest level of complexity and what ought to be labeled as fraud, but many times isn't because no one knows what the price is supposed to be anyway. So if you get the wrong price, who is there to tell? And since we don't really have any transparency right now, although the Consolidated Appropriations Act is making some inroads into that. And I'd love to hear you, you know, veer into that territory too, because I know you know that act very well. And what was the other thing that I found really interesting is, and and just to kind of give a little background on the legal system, we had a jury trial, right? So they bring in about 30 potential jurors for us to pick from, right? And there's a little bit of a process that we go through. And one of the things that you do is you you ask questions to all the jurors to make sure there's no conflicts or biases, right? You know, certainly we don't want, I would not want somebody who worked for Quest sitting on the jury as a very obvious example. And I would say we had about a jury pool, I'd say around 30 people, over half of them had some negative interaction with the healthcare system. Whether and one guy stood up and says, I went to Quest and I got a bill for $900 and I went to a different lab the following year, it was 90. You know, and you could hear that tinge of anger in his voice. And and so, yes, and people are confused and, and people are angry. Another guy spent a year and a half dealing with his insurance carrier on behalf of a uh, on his uh, something that happened with his wife. So, so many people are being affected by the healthcare system. And yet I think they they don't realize that it's happening everywhere. You know, and getting everybody in this room, you start seeing the heads nodding and, you know, you you see them starting to make eye contact. They're complete strangers, right? But they're starting to make eye contact like, I know what you went through. I did it too. Um, so people are getting up frustrated. And now with the CAA, I think this is a game changer because now with price transparency and the, the ability to have those tools, people are going to start to know. And what's interesting, because of the CAA, we were able to get the cash pay price for those tests from Quest, from LabCorp, and we were able to show just how much they were overcharging for that that blood panel. 
Oh, wow. Like on average, what do you, what do you say that was? Oh gosh. I mean, I mean, well, it's, it's, we're kind of comparing a little bit apples to oranges because this, this happened in 2018, obviously before price transparency and inflation and all of that, but it was still, you know, a significant difference where the cash pay price was, you know, a good, you know, hundred dollars more or I'm sorry, the cash pay price was $100 less than what it, you know, they were charging. So that type of insight, you know, and, and keep in mind, these are the amounts that if you're, if you're, you got a plan with your employer, that plan that's not going to get triggered by the auto adjudication, that's not going to get picked up as being fraudulent because it's such a low amount, but it's happening. And if, you know, you add it all up, it, it, it matters. I mean, people have said all, all along, and I know there's a lot of argument over it, but people start to say HSAs are really deterrents to good health. Yeah, they might be great for avoiding taxes. <laughs> but when you have a $5,000 deductible and you need your labs done and each individual lab test that gets sent through it, your insurance is padded with a, you know, a hundred dollars or so of middleman money, then eventually you're going to stop getting those labs done because you're like, it's just not worth it. They're probably fine. And who knows? Maybe they aren't. Maybe that person's A1C is 12 <laughs> and they don't know it, but they're, they're tired of being monkeyed with and gamed just so they can have a Buka logo on their ID card. I really hope that employees start to speak up once they hear what's happening behind the scenes where they've never really been told how this stuff, how this sausage is made. Well, and I think they're going to start wanting to know how the sausage is made because of these high deductible type plans, right? I mean, it, you know, my favorite ones are the people like, oh, well, I didn't pay for it because my insurance paid for it. Like, well, who do you think's paying? Someone's paying for it. It's not, you know, the insurance companies don't have money trees. But now when that burden's shifted, they're starting to question it. They're absolutely starting to look. And now there's those tools are out there and everyone loves Google, right? So right. they're going to be able to find out this information. They're going to start asking questions as they should. And, you know, the the provider's office, say, say this, these uh, labs were done in the primary care office. I mean, if you are dependent on insurance reimbursements as a primary care doctor, please begin to look into direct primary care. I mean, goodness gracious. There's what, 100,000 ICD-10 codes? Like my buddy, Carl Schusler, who co-founded the Mitigate Partners that I'm a part of, he tells me that there's actually a code uh, when, when ICD-9 went to ICD-10 and it went from about 10,000 codes to about 100,000 codes. There's actually a code now that that is for catching on fire while water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think he's lying to me because he says this is actually true. So I believe him. I haven't looked it up myself. But when primary care um, practices have that much bureaucracy to have to wade through, things are going to happen that just aren't good. And again, that's why I'm such a big proponent for direct primary care, because usually, you know, a metabolic panel or a complete blood count, which usually includes all the core stuff, like getting your cholesterol checked and your blood sugar and your stuff like that, that's usually somewhere in the $5 range. And, and they, 
some practices may be just included with your direct primary care membership. How things would have been different for this lady if she had just had a direct primary care doctor provided by her employer. So there, I said it. <laughs> but but Jackie, kind of go back to the, the claims process. We mentioned this earlier, you and I, when we talked, and we're both sort of on the same team. We're, we're trying to bring knowledge and experience and insights to the same types of people. And a lot of times when we mention things like ERISA and fiduciary duties and the Consolidated Appropriations Act, a lot of times what we get back is blank stares, like maybe we have alien horns growing out of our heads or something. I don't know. But it's it's because they just don't know the inner workings of how health insurance works. Well, you mentioned to me yesterday that lawyers they have an important tool in their tool belt called discovery, right? So while you're doing your due diligence to pick apart all of the complexity, um, you get to ask questions and you get to learn things that maybe weren't obvious to you before. I'm I'm interested to know if during the discovery process of this um, case, if there was anything that even you learned that you didn't already know. Yeah, they're all I me. Mean, I'm it's I'm constantly learning. So yes, but the the two things that stood out was one, they couldn't even explain the data that they were giving us, right? So we were getting, you know, information like what whatever they're inputting on their computer whenever you know somebody calls or they're processing a claim, they couldn't track it to a specific person. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, you know, Christy handled this on December first. They couldn't, the, the employee identifiers were changing. They're not consistent. So they couldn't even tell us who we could talk to to find out what happened on a specific date, which is really, a, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. Discovery, usually find out what's going on, right? Usually you can figure out, piece the the the, the puzzle together. With this, it was it was impossible. Um, and they couldn't even talk about it. We, we kept getting, well, you have to go to the medical billing office. Well, okay, well, who? I don't know. That to me was was re- really interesting that even when pressed on it under the penalties of perjury and under oath and all of that, they still could not provide meaningful answers. And I don't believe that they were lying. It's just that's how the system is set up, right? Like the people themselves are good people. It's just uh, it's a bad system. Uh, the thing that I did learn with as it relates to Quest and the their their representative at trial was very proud to say that Quest does not want to put people in collections that when a claim is denied, they put it on hold for 40 days. And that way they review it to make sure they didn't make a mistake. And they did that here. They put the claim on hold. They learned that they did not make a mistake. And they that's when they started sending bills to our client. But what was interesting is once that claim got resubmitted with the correct code, they then claimed, well, we never heard back from Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they have zero processes in place to follow up. There's nothing to say, let's put it on another 40-day hold. There's no one to say, hey, we haven't heard back from Blue Cross Blue Shield on this claim. What's the status? And that's where they try to say, well, well, you know, Nicole should have been calling, my client. She should have been calling to find out. Well, why? You know, Quest has a portal to Blue Cross Blue Shield. They have, they have all the access in the world to find out what's going on. And they will not dedicate any personnel or any efforts whatsoever to follow up on the status of claims. And it seems like if they have this portal and they signed network access agreements 
with the, with the carrier, then they should know what price point for each lab they agreed to up front. And someone should be able to see that. But apparently all that is opaque. No one knows and no, one no one's telling the price of anything. And that was sort of what we were getting at. That was kind of our theory was, I get that the, the person that's answering the phone, you know, your your lack of a better word, lower level employee may not have access to that network service agreement. They may not see what the negotiated rates are, but there should be somebody. Right. But they couldn't identify a single person. Yeah. You know, they've got 18, say- this case was in Palm Beach County, Florida. They have 18 labs, standalone labs in the county, hundreds throughout the state of Florida. And not one single person could sit there and testify as to their network service agreement. Oh, wow. That just means, well, well, golly, Jackie, isn't that the definition of a gag clause? I mean, if no one knows and they're not allowed to tell, and if they run up the chain, they're not going to be given the answers. What yeah, I mean, that is not a gag clause. Well, and that's what's interesting about the CAA with the gag clauses is, is, is you know, I've talked about this before. It's not just an actual clause, but it is making it impossible to get the information, right? Whether it's huge fees or the fact that you have to run up the chain so far to finally get somebody. Yeah, they they have to provide access to information. And if they make it difficult, that in essence is a gag clause. Oh, what a tangled web they weave, Jackie. So this was a jury trial. And obviously you had to put people on the stand and ask them questions uh, so the jury could hear it. Was there anything that came out, anything else that that might have come out during a testimony that was interesting, almost like a epiphany? Well, the 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 representative request, you know, again, put the blame on Nicole for not calling, you know, and the fact that they had zero ability to monitor that resubmitted claim. And then she did go on to say, well, we put on our bills that if you get an EOB that has a different amount, you should call us. And that's EOBs. Yeah. Well, and and in this case, our client got received contradictory EOBs. One said she owed nothing. Another one said she owed $73. So why is it on her to figure out the correct amount when this is literally what Quest is in the business of doing, right? Drawing blood, testing it, whatever it is, and then billing for it. And they have all the tools to do it while my client, you know, certainly did not. So to that extent, it was really fascinating how they just, it's it's the patient's responsibility. And so if you're an employer and you're listening to this, that's your employee. That's the phone calls that are happening on, on company time trying to figure out why they have to pay a bill. So again, you know, you extrapolate that across, you know, multiple employees. It's it's an expense that you can't account for. So, you know, that's that's why this becomes so, so critical. That's why people talk about presenteeism so much. You know, your employee is there, they're, you know, breathing, their heart is beating and they're sitting at their desk, but they have no ability to be productive to help your company grow because they're weeding through red bureaucratic tape, intentional complexity. Because yes, if providers believe that it's up to the patient to figure out the bills, then why wouldn't they just keep submitting bills fraught with error just to tie everybody's time up and frustrate the patient so that they just pay it just to be able to move on? Exactly. And an amount with, you know, the $293, and we come back to that where that's a small amount. I think most people would say, fine, I'll just pay it. 
or, you know, they just to get it to go away because I, I don't have the time. Well, you know, and I told it was, it's very stressful for, for clients to go through litigation. And, you know, I talked to her and I said, you know, you're being courageous. You're standing up for so many people who who can't. So present team, I, I love it because, you know, yeah, people, they're at work, but they're not working. Right. They're focused on something else. You know what else they're doing? They're gossiping. They're talking <laughs> to the person in the cubicle next to them. You'll never believe what happened to me. I mean. And it 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 just is that insidious type of behavior uh, that kind of builds and causes that discontent, and people aren't giving you their best efforts, and then they start questioning their plan. Right, and it plays into morale because yep. if you're trying to have an engaged workforce that is hitting on all cylinders, but yet your health plan is using them as a pawn in the middleman's game, then that has to play into their psyche and the morale that that comes with it. Don't you think? Oh, 100%, 100%. I mean, how many times, and I would love to hear, you know, how many people are on the HR side getting complaints from employees saying our insurance is horrible, right? You know, I just, I just was in a meeting yesterday and they're talking about open enrollment and somebody called it bad news delivery, right? Because that's what they have to deliver the bad news to employees about how much their premiums are going up and, and the deductible amounts and all of that. Why are we accepting that? Too bad right? they don't have the broker compensation disclosures to, to send, hand out during open enrollment meetings right then and there. This is why your premiums are going up in part is because, you know, all of these other hidden costs are going up. Give a little advice then to employees who may find themselves in similar situations. They've gotten a surprise bill and they don't know what to do next. First of all, I will still plug again, Marshall Allen's book. So if you don't have the book, Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win, buy it on Amazon and follow Marshall on uh, LinkedIn and Substack and all the places where he exists. But just from um, Jackie's opinion, what should an employee do in the face of a surprise bill that they don't understand, even if it's a small amount? Sure. And I get these calls all the time. Right. And I sit there and I'm like, look, I'm not I don't want you paying me. Right. That doesn't make sense. One of the things I tell them is go back to your HR. Right. Go back to find out if there's a patient advocacy program that's being provided as part of your plan. You know, ask them why you're getting this bill and see if somebody on that end can help you. And, you know, don't sit there. It's not your responsibility, right? Like, don't sit there and waste your time calling because you're most likely not going to get anywhere. If it starts getting escalated, right, where no one's taking care of it and you're not getting the answers and you're getting, you know, jumped around from, you know, one representative to another and you have to keep repeating that story, it might be time to call a lawyer. I mean, I, I hate you know, saying that, but we're going to be a little bit more effective. Um, and, I, and, and I get these calls all the time where I'll tell somebody, look, you know, why don't you go try this with through your HR department, see if your plan has something that can help you. And about six months later, I get a phone call back saying, I'm now in collections. They've sent me to collection agency. Don't wait, document, you know, know who you're talking to, keep track of what efforts you make because it, it will be helpful to be able to fight back. And again, it doesn't really matter the size because obviously... In this case, and this is this is the one thing that kind of shocked me about this case. We talked about the bill being $293, and there was also some other damages for the time that the, our client spent trying to fix it. The jury came back with an award of $11,293.12, <laughs> and that was like the biggest, you know, 
kind of F you, if you will, to Quest about, you know, adding on that $293. So uh, we were really excited that she was able to win. And that was separate, by the way, of the attorney's fees. That still has to be, uh, but Quest is going to be paying attorney's fees. I won't call it a made up bill because I know somewhere in their files, they've got to be something in their charge master that caused their, you know, their bill to be printed out with that number on it. But all over a ridiculously small for them amount of money, they got their lunch handed to him by, you know, and, 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 you know, an individual employee just standing her ground and saying, this is not right. And I'm just, I'm going to, I'm just going to stand up for what's right for what, whatever the truth should be here. So correct. And, and they fought it tooth and nail. I mean, they try to get that case dismissed. I don't know how many times, anytime we asked for discovery, they fought it. They objected to it. I mean, they just, it was scorched earth on their end to to fight this whole bill. And it certainly didn't work out for them. Well, now if a, if a employees do have a surprise bill, they could reference your case to their provider and say, look, you can help me here or I can call Jackie Grady. And did you hear what judgment she got on behalf of a client? I don't think you want to be in that situation, do you? I mean, hey, I would I would totally stoop to that <laughs> tactic. Yeah. And the sad thing is, is the, you know, her doctor was, I mean, they, I think they, I don't know who made up the, or had the wrong code put on, but her doctor fixed it. Right. So it wasn't the initial, it wasn't her provider that she had the relationship with. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what bothers me is Quest through their activities really soured her, what you're talking about, soured her on the healthcare system. Right. I don't think she went back to that doctor after that because it was such a you know left such a bad taste in her mouth and she wasn't she was scared if i go back i'm going to get another bill that i can't afford to pay right now you know and so the doctor ends up losing a patient over the just the arrogant actions of someone else and that's that's really sad this is something that i told a family member when I explain that, you know, because I choose a direct primary care doctor who, of course, doesn't have an in-house lab, I'm just, you know, he sends the orders to my local lab corps. I show up, I get the vials drawn, and then he calls me back with the results the same day. It's not like I'm having them drawn in-house. I do take that one extra step and I go to a lab corps office, which is really no big deal because for the $5 charge, why wouldn't I do it that way, right? A lot of primary care practices, shoot, a lot of specialty care practices because they need to know these blood levels for a number of different reasons. They subcontract or bill those lab fees to a third party so that they can do their doctoring. But here's the thing. When you take that part of what you uh, of the 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 clinical makeup of how you do your your work for your patients and you allow that extra not really not associated third party sour your relationship with your patient when you really could have had a direct relationship with your patient. I really hope the people at the DPC Alliance are listening to this podcast because they might be able to use it for their own marketing purposes. I really think that 
especially in primary care, the fee-for-service model is outdated. And there's plenty of people smarter than me, like Dr. Eric Bricker. He has a whole little video mm-hmm. entitled fee-for-service in primary care is just dumb. And so if, yeah, if you're a doctor out there in primary care and you haven't adopted or at least started kicking the tires on the direct primary care model, you really should because the way you have to provide your care, it, it it is going to include some vendor relationships. But when you put fee-for-service in, into the equation, that's a huge liability for you. All right, let's turn our attention then to employers. So we've already told an interesting story and you've already given some advice to employees. Now, give your advice to the employers. A lot of them are scared by fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Dave, Dave Chase mentioned that in his TED Talk that he did years ago before writing you know, his book and co-founding the Health Rosetta. He said that the people who are trying to protect the status quo are just going to insert fear, uncertainty, and doubt into anybody who wants to, to change things. And that's totally what we're seeing. The, the, the status quo is being protected in a really illegitimate way Because the people that are profiting from the status quo are trying to scare employers from not moving in a more transparent direction. From a lawyer's perspective and considering what the Consolidated Appropriations Act requires and how it changed ERISA and really beefed up ERISA's fiduciary duties, give employers out there some advice from your, you know, their friendly neighborhood attorney. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know a lot of employers back with, you know, the 401ks, they have committees, right, to make sure that the investments make sense. You got to start doing it with your health care plan if you don't have it already. Get that committee p- put together so that you're not putting it all on one or two people's shoulders because it's too it's too heavy of a lift for one or, or two people. So get that committee together. And one of the things that that I'm advocating for is start early in the process, right? We actually, I have a client that actually, as soon as their plan year began, began preparing for the the following year. Now that might be a little bit extreme, but the point being is what I have seen is your traditional brokers are coming in saying, well, okay, here's your three choices and you got to pick by next week because we got to get open enrollment scheduled and we got to get this going and we got to get the contract signed. And all of a sudden you're rushing and you're not making the best decision. And it and everyone's now focused on a price point versus value, right? Like, are we really getting the value from this plan that we're putting together? And so what I'd say is get started early, get your committee together, start identifying what is important as a corporate core value with your healthcare plan and what do your employees need. Healthcare is not one size fits all. Okay. So the health plan that my law firm may use is going to be drastically different than a healthcare plan that a manufacturing company may need. So don't, you know, having a broker that's doing them all and selling a one size fits all model isn't, isn't the right way to do it. So start identifying what those needs are and then make sure that when those, you know, requests for information or requests for proposal, however they want to call it, is sent out that it's addressing those needs and addressing those concerns up front, right? Because we're we're finding that we're getting candidates in, whether it's a PBM or a TPA or whoever it is, and they really don't fit. They're not the right fit, but because that fear of we got to get it signed, we got to you know open enrollment's coming up. Give yourself time to address other issues beyond price. 
You can all once you find a good fit, then you can start looking at the you know narrow it down and say, all right, who now fits on a on a pricing model. Um, so that's what I'm telling employers is start early, really start identifying what is important to the company and what is important to your employees so that you don't have your employees sitting there saying, I got a $293 bill and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. I got a call now. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. I've always tried to work on that sort of rolling three-year strategy. And, you know, you identify the low-hanging fruit, the nice-to-haves, maybe get put on a next year you know, time frame, and and then you've got your sort of global view of what you think you'd like to achieve, and that's sort of on this rolling three year strategy. I, I like that a lot. It it puts everybody at ease. We know what we can accomplish right away, but we also know that it's not a set it and forget it benefit ever. Don't stop thinking <laughs> that health insurance is something that you make a decision about once a year. It's something that you make decisions about every day. The right plan where you have data to analyze, you have the customer experience to consider, those types of things happen every day. Elements of a health plan and the way you attend to it is a year-round strategy. Why are we only looking at it once a year? So I like your idea. That's good advice. Free advice on Healthcare Solutions Podcast. I think uh, I think that anyone who listens today got a good bit of value out of it. Yeah, and I, I just, I love what you said. It's not a, a once a year decision. You're absolutely right. And there's so many things where, you know, if you're paying attention to the data, you're starting to see maybe somebody is, um, they've been going to a, an orthopedic and they're starting to get shots and surgery is not going to be far behind, right? So how do you start heading that off where they're going to a surgical center or they're going to a physician, a surgeon who's going to be really expensive and not have value of care behind it? So there's ways to really get involved and make sure that your employees are being educated on making better healthcare decisions. Because the big, the big fallacy, right, is when I Oh, I'm going to just share this real quick story. When I started doing this, I was out to dinner and I and I was talking to um, the people I was with, and they were a little bit. They were an older couple, and the guy kind of questioned me about what I was doing. He's like, "But we trust our doctors," and I said, "Well, you should trust your doctor. It's the it's the administrators and the middlemen that are causing the problems. But it is that psychology which I think has been taken advantage of by the healthcare system, by insurance carriers." by certain types of brokers that they that if you trust your doctor you're not going to question the bill you're not going to question the claim you're not going to question their recommendations and while i fully agree i don't want to question my doctor but i think if we educate about how to make better medical decisions if we can help our employees make those decisions they can still trust their doctor but also still get value of care that is benefiting not just them but the plan overall and you know the only thing that you said there that I'll I'll take a different approach to is I feel like in direct care uh direct primary care specifically there's so much time that is afforded to the relationship that I don't I'm not going to call it questioning I'm just going to call it collaborating we have time to just question the situation. And we have time to commiserate about that with each other. 
and weigh different options. And, and I have my own questions about my own health. And so those bring up other questions and that leads us in one direction or another. Um, when I say I question him, it's not that I'm questioning his abilities or his knowledge or his, you know, education or experience, but let's face it, they don't call it the practice of medicine for nothing, right? <laughs> I think that we're all practicing at this whole thing. We come at it with different backgrounds and different experience and knowledge that, yeah, I think having a, a mutual uh, curiosity about how do we take the next step that makes the most sense, that conversation is going to take time. It's going to take a whole lot more than the seven-minute national average that we all know of that happens in fee-for-service and primary care, especially hospital-owned primary care and fee-for-service. So yeah, that'll be one more thing that I'll add to your recommendation for employees, that if they find themselves using their insurance for primary care, get out of that nonsense. Start to look for a direct primary care doctor. I I promise you, you can afford it and it'll be the best money you've ever spent. Well, and, and Chris, you, that's a great point as far as, you know, the di- highlighting the difference. Direct primary care, you can sit and have a conversation with your doctor, right? They're most likely not going to sit there facing a computer screen, typing in or checking off boxes, right? They're actually have a conversation. So you're right. You're not questioning your doctor's ability. You're questioning, hey, what's going to happen to me next? What is What does this do for me? Because this is your recommendation. That's not questioning. But when you go to a fee-for-service, and that doctor spends all of seven minutes and then says, see the girl on the way out for your referral or, you know, she'll hand you the preprinted list of who we recommend you go to for the, the surgery. You don't get a chance to ask those questions. Right. And just, you're literally right. just picking names and, you know, going, well, I don't like that person's name. So let me go to this person because I like the name better or that that office is closer to where I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how that decision is being made versus that's that's not an educated decision. That might as well be, you know, surgery roulette, if that's the way <laughs> that it's it's happening. Yep. Well, Jackie, I know I could talk to you for another hour if if uh, we, we, we could go on and on for a long time. But I think we covered some good territory here. And the people who made it this far will get a lot out of this and not only have some insights, but also have uh, some instructions on next steps. So... Thank you so much for being my guest today. If people uh, want to reach out to you, how do they do that? They can call my office, 754-333-0313. We always set up, you know, consultations. You get to talk directly with me. And then, or if you just want some general information, you can go to the website, www.gradylegal.com. It's not greedy. I get that a lot. Like, oh, you're greedy or greedy lawyer. No, it's gradylegal.com. Hey, I don't think a greedy lawyer would take on a case <laughs> of uh, a little lady with a $293 lab bill. I think that anyone who's interested in doing good work for hardworking Americans, um, you know, looks at everyone kind of equally. So you're, yeah, I don't think you're greedy at all. Thank you. Uh, you're the kind of attorney that I want in my list of friends, and I, I consider you uh, on that list. So. Hey, the next time you have a, a juicy case that hits your desk, I want to know about it. I'll let you know. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, we'll check in again soon. All right. Thank you, Christy. 
Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work.